0: Welcome to another episode of Evidence-Based Radio in Exile, (laughs) so to speak. Uh, As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also find me on Twitter at EBR underscore VFR where I, again, will sometimes spend more time. Um, I'm working on that, (laughs) theoretically. Um, But let's start out tonight with a quick profile of an African-American female scientist that I had never heard of before and who I bet you haven't either. Margaret S. Collins, born Margaret James in 1922, grew up in Institute, West Virginia, her father was a professor of agriculture at West Virginia State College, an historically black college, um, part of the collection of historically black colleges and uh, universities, usually referred to as HBCUs, which was located in their hometown. She had the rare opportunity to grow up among African-American intellectuals at a time where getting any kind of higher education was still extremely difficult for African-Americans in this country, and really in a lot of places. In fact, HBCUs were specifically founded, most of them, uh, beginning in the 19th century, to offer havens of learning to those who were shut out of the mainstream academic circles. She was first able to access the college library at six years old and was ready to enter the college as a student at age 14. She earned a bachelor's and um, she earned a bachelor's and master's degree in biology, and then was accepted into the PhD program in zoology at the University of Chicago, which at the time had granted more PhDs to African-American students than any other university in the world. From day one, Collins's path was set. She met Alfred Emerson, an entomologist working on termites, her first day of orientation she would go on eventually to be referred to as the termite lady, which was a better moniker than you actually might think (laughs) in this case. Unfortunately, even though this was an important center for learning for African-Americans, Collins had two disadvantages in this time period, and probably still today, in fact, absolutely still today. Not only was she an African-American, But she was a woman. And so Emerson thought that women were annoying, quote unquote, during fieldwork. And so she was denied the opportunity to do that important fieldwork. She was relegated to studying Emerson's collection of termites for her dissertation. Despite this restriction, she was able to graduate with her doctorate in 1950, She would go on to hold positions at several HBSUs, Howard University, Florida A&M University, and Federal City College, which is now known as the University of the District of Columbia. She was not only active in academia, but was also an advocate for civil rights. She put herself at risk during a pause in her work to act as a driver for co-workers in the Tallahassee bus boycott, which started in 1956. She continued both her scholarship and activism, and eventually was able to go on those important field work trips, and so she was able to travel through the Caribbean and Central America studying termites. In 1989, she co-identified a new species of termite, Neotermes lucii, and continued to work even after retirement. She was actually working as a research associate for the Smithsonian Institute in 1996 when she passed away at the age of 73 from congestive heart failure while in the Cayman Islands. The Smithsonian honors her with a collection named after her at the National Museum of Natural History. So that is very cool. And she sounds like she was an amazing woman. And I just want to, uh, I just, I had to share this one because I thought it was such a good example of how if you just scratch the surface of the idea of any of this kind of silliness about, um, People that they're a lot more like each other than uh, they aren't in terms of the spectrum of being able to achieve. And in that uh, respect, a quick nod to NASA, who has recognized its first African-American female engineer by renaming their headquarters as the Mary W. Jackson NASA Headquarters Building in Washington, D.C., which just happens to be on Hidden Figures Way. Jackson joined NASA in 1958, the year the agency was founded. She had already been working at the Langley Memorial Aeronautics Laboratory beginning in 1951. She started out as a mathematician and then was able eventually to become an engineer. I don't want to tell you too much about her life because you should already know um, a fair amount of it, at least loosely, because she was portrayed by the amazing Janelle Monet in the movie Hidden Figures. Today, we proudly announce the Mary W. Jackson NASA Headquarters Building, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said in a statement uh, this past Wednesday. Mary W. Jackson was part of a group of very important women who helped NASA succeed in getting American astronauts into space. She helped break barriers and open opportunities for African Americans and women in the field of engineering and technology. Now Jackson returned to Langley as part of the Langley's Federal Women's Program in 1979 where she was known to be an advocate for hiring and promotion of the younger generation to continue the hard work begun by her and her colleagues she retired in 1985 and passed away in 2005 and again especially in the current climate i think it's a a really great thing to celebrate. We need to keep reminding each other and ourselves that there is no reason to think that African-Americans cannot do extraordinary things in academia or anywhere, honestly. We have been so conditioned to believe that white people, especially white men, are just better suited to being great thinkers. This is simply a product of a long legacy of racism and the actual oppression of minorities and especially African-Americans in this country. And so um, speaking of Twitter, I was just reading Twitter this morning for a few minutes and someone was saying that uh, it's not in the sciences, but it was a writer who said the only breaks she's ever gotten in the writing uh, field have been from other African-American women. And so to have women in these positions, especially African-American women, to be able to open opportunities for others because, frankly, white people are just not doing it. (laughs) Um, It's still a very, very hard thing um, for people of color to really be taken seriously in a lot of um, areas, and it's just... it, it needs to stop, and we need to figure out a way to make it stop. Okay. So just a little bit of, uh, historical knowledge about some fantastic women. Um, I just love the idea of the termite queen going, starting college at 14. Like she is the quintessential, uh, argument against the idea that, oh, you know, African Americans are somehow just not as good at academics and, you know, that they can't be, uh, rigorously, rigorously intellectual. It's just, it's ridiculous. And we should all be very upset at anyone who continues to try and say that. All right, let's pivot to a different subject. Now, this is kind of a bittersweet subject, but I did think that in this current uh, climate, it's kind of nice to talk about a bit of a success so, researchers are reporting that the second largest Ebola outbreak in history is finally over. The outbreak has been decimating the Democratic Republic of Congo for nearly two years, infecting over 3,400 people and killing 2,280. Now, this strain wasn't even the most virulent. It killed only two out of three patients. The most deadly can kill 90% of patients. Now, this outbreak has been of note, however, because it is the first time that healthcare workers have had access to a reliable and effective vaccine. Around 300,000 people were vaccinated, according to the World Health Organization. Unfortunately, conflict and mistrust of healthcare workers did not allow for a complete containment of the disease. Now, the mistrust was so bad, especially for health workers coming out from outside, uh, they were attacked on several occasions, and some of those attacks even led to fatalities. And of course, unfortunately, the country has been war torn. Now, the outbreak seemed like it might be over by April, 50 days beyond the last known case, or the last known new case. However, just days before the deadline, who announced a new case had been found and several more cases popped up with the last occurring on April 27th, and all of these cases were unfortunately tied to the original outbreak. but they now say that it is done. Unfortunately, as I said, this is bittersweet because this is not the end of Ebola in the DRC. A new unrelated strain has already infected at least 17 people and killed 11. Now the virus is still largely zoonotic with outbreaks starting with human animal contact. As with coronaviruses, though not necessarily the current one. Um, We still, I don't think, know exactly how it traveled to humans. Um, But in this case, a likely vector is bats. And it still requires close contact with bodily fluids. So it's not nearly as contagious, say, as the new coronavirus. But it will almost certainly continue to haunt us in the near future as we continue to have issues with getting the vaccine to everyone who really needs it um, for one reason or another. And so, but I still think it's, it is at least a semi hopeful story because we do finally have a vaccine and we should be able to continue to try and make strides in getting people vaccinated. And that will allow us to eventually really severely reduce the amount of infections. Okay, let's move on now to another part of Africa to talk about an amazing an amazing ancient site. We all know about Stonehenge and there's been some recent uh a recent report of a new henge that has been found around Stonehenge that would have probably originally been large um tree trunks would have been placed, or poles would have been placed into the henge to create the circle. Um, But we're not going to talk about Stonehenge. And uh, just so that you know, the ancient inhabitants of Europe were not the first to create megalithic structures to attract objects in the sky. The European tradition, beginning most likely in France, dates to around 6,000 years old. However, The object of our story, Playa, around 700 miles south of the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, is from more than 7,000 years ago. It is possibly Earth's oldest astronomical observatory. Now, this is another megalithic stone circle. It's not as impressive as Stonehenge is, But it is much older and is quite an engineering feat for the people who created it. The people who built this structure were nomadic. They most likely worshipped a cattle god and would have used the circle to mark the summer solstice and the arrival of monsoons. Here is human beings' first attempt to make some serious connections with the heavens. J. McKim Malville, a a professor emeritus at the University of Colorado and an archaeoastronomy expert of uh, the Southwest, tells uh, tells astronomy, this was the dawn of observational astronomy, he added. What in the world did they think about it? Did they imagine these stars were gods? And what kinds of connections did they have with the stars and the stones? Unfortunately, we can't tell what those answers are specifically, but we do know that they did have that connection and they were definitely able to find out what these connections were in the sense of connecting the seasons and the movement of the stars now the area was discovered in 1973 by american archaeologist fred wendorf along with colleagues or along with a bedouin depending on who you ask that's a weird part of the story is that there's different origins for how it was found but let's not get bogged down in that wendorf had been searching for evidence of the origins of pharaonic Egypt away from the Nile River, and this was back in started he started this back in the sixties while everyone was looking at temples. Wendorf decided he would look at the desert, says Malville he opened up the era opened up the era of pre-dynastic Egypt and the ancient kingdom. Now Wendorf initially believed the stones were a natural formation. However, he realized that the area was actually an ancient dried lake bed, which would have moved or otherwise eroded away such rocks if they hadn't been placed there deliberately and maintained. After finding an initial set of monolithic stones, Wendorf continued to excavate the area for years to come. In the early 1990s, Wendorf and his colleagues, including Polish archaeologist Romulad Schild, excavated a circle of stones which seemed to align with the stars in some way. For seven years, Wendorf puzzled over the alignments until he finally gave up and called in J. McKim Malville. Initially perplexed himself, Malville really realized he needed to actually see the site. Once he got there, he says that he experienced an epiphany, quote-unquote, while sitting in the sand near the stones. I discovered that these stones were part of an alignment that radiated out from a major tumulus, uh, or a burial ground, Malville says. A pile of these megaliths formed the covering of a tomb, and it turned out that every one of the megaliths that we found buried in sediment formed a line, like spokes in a wheel radiating out. The team had already been able to date the site using radiocarbon dating of samples from hearths and tamarisk roofing materials found within the circle. It was like a zen experience to see how they fit together, he says. Knowing the dates, I could calculate when these stones would have been in alignment with the brightest stars in the northern sky. He found the circle aligned to Arcturus, Sirius, and Alpha Centauri. There were also stones that corresponded to the constellation Orion. By tracking the movements of Arcturus across the night sky, he proposed that the stars would have aligned at this place around 4800 BC. Now, more than 10,000 years ago, northern Africa began to thaw from the Ice Age climate. What was once cold, dry areas began to become warmer and be watered by seasonal monsoons. This filled up seasonal lakes known as playa, that provided a temp- temporary refuge for nomadic people. These submarines were most likely sacred to the people of the area, who were just starting to domesticate goats and the ancient ancestor of cows, the Uruks. As noted, cattle were very important to these people. When excavating the site's central tomb, they found not human remains as expected, but rather cow bones and an enormous rock carved into what seemed to be the shape of a cow. These nomadic herders would have moved across the Sahara from one seasonal lake to another. Their experience was rather similar to Polynesian navigators who had to sail from one place to another, Melville says, that he suspects they used the stars to travel across the desert to locate small water- watering holes like Naptopia, which had water about four months of the year, probably probably starting with the summer monsoon. Now, interestingly, and I actually didn't know this, at the time, there was no north star. So people navigated using bright stars and the circular motion of the stars against the sky. The stone's bases would have been covered by seasonal water, and they would have been visible from the western lakeshore. You would watch the reflection of the stars off the dark waters of the lake, and you could see the stones partially submerged in the water, lining up with the reflection of the stars on the horizon, he says. Now, knowing when the solstice occurred would have given the ancient inhabitants knowledge that the monsoons were soon to follow. This coming of the rainy season would have become increasingly important as the people began to become more agrarian. The first signs of, the, of these people in the area come from around 9000 BCE, when the Sahara would have been wetter and much more inhabitable. People began to dig wells and build homes around them. Archaeologists have excavated an area of Napta which had huts with hearths, storage pits, and wells that were spread out in a, quote, well-organized village. Between around 5000 and 3000 BCE, the area began to dry up. Some researchers believe this shift caused the people to develop a more complex society. The ancient people studied the constellations and understood the movements of the stars. They made sacrifices and worshipped gods. They used ground pigments for body paint and carved jewelry out of cow bones. They even had fish carvings, which suggests they may have had trade with people on the Red Sea. The culture was somewhere between nomadic and agrarian. They clearly had nomadic herds. However, the area also has the oldest known remains of sorghum, a crop that was domesticated in Africa and is a major staple for many people still today. Excavations at Napta Playa have uncovered hundreds of seeds that are more closely genetically related to domestic rather than wild varieties of sorghum. Millet was also domesticated in the same region. The people had storage pits for grass seeds, tubers, legumes, and fruit. They were able to live in a still semi-blooming Sahara before it became the more barren lands that we see today. Okay, let us move on to another set of uh, stories. First, we are going to discuss the sense of smell. Researchers at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine have, for the first time, created an electrical signal which is perceived as an odor in the brain's smell processing center, the olfactory bulb, in mice, of course, despite the odor not existing. Because the signal was man-made, researchers were able to manipulate the timing and order of related nerve signaling and identify which of these tweaks were most important to the ability of mice to accurately identify the phantom smell. Decoding how the brain tells apart odors is complicated, in part because unlike with other senses such as vision, we do not yet know the most important aspects of individual smells, said study lead investigator Edmund Chong, MS, a doctoral student at NYU Langan Health In facial recognition, for example, the brain can recognize people based on visual cues, such as the eyes, even without seeing someone's nose and ears, said Chong, but these distinguishing features, as recorded by the brain, have yet to be found for each smell. The study, published in the journal Science, centers on the olfactory bulb which lies behind the nose in humans and animals. Previous studies have found that airborne molecules linked to scents trigger receptor cells lining the nose to send electrical signals to nerve-ending bundles in the bulb called glomeruli, and then on to the brain. The timing and order of glomeruli activation is known to be unique for every smell. From the olfactory bulb, the signal travels to the brain's cortex, which controls how an animal perceives, reacts to, and remembers a smell. Because of the fact that smells can vary over time and mingle with other smells, researchers have struggled to pin down the sequence of activation across several types of neurons. This is where developing an artificial smell that can be manipulated came in. The experiments use mice that have been genetically engineered so that their brain cells can be activated by shining a light on them. This technique is called optogenetics and has been very helpful in recent years to discern different aspects of neural functioning. Also, just as a side uh, note, the this doesn't actually hurt the mice. Um, and so it's actually a less evasive uh, version of doing things than actually putting probes into the mice's brain, so um, it's actually more humane, though at some point we might talk about the idea of uh, moving towards not actually doing animal models anymore, which would be fantastic. Um, But anyways, the researchers taught the mice to push a lever when they recognized a signal generated by light activation of six glomeruli, which resembled the pattern given by an odor, which gave them a reward when they correctly identified the the specific pattern. They then changed the timing and the sequence of activated glomeruli to discern how this affected the mouse's ability to perceive the original odor. They found that changing the first glomeruli, it's a very hard word to say, (laughs) within each odor set led to as much as a 30% drop in the mouse's ability to correctly identify the odor. However, changes in the last glomeruli created as little as 5% of confusion. Now, the researchers found that timing was like the notes in a melody, apparently, and any delays or interruptions in the early notes made the mouse less able to denote the smell signals. Now that we have a model for breaking down the timing and order of glomeruli activation, we can examine the minimum number and kind of receptors needed by the olfactory bulb to identify a particular smell, says study senior investigator and neurobiologist Dimitri Rindberg, Ph.D. at NYU Langone and its Neuroscience Institute. Our results identify for the first time a code for how the brain converts sensory information into perception of something, in this case an odor, adds Rinberg. This puts us closer to answering the long-standing question in our field of how the brain extracts sensory information to evoke behavior. And of course, that is something that we definitely want to know about. How does smelling something bad tell the brain to recoil or to grimace, how does smelling something good evoke certain uh, pleasurable feelings, or how do certain scents uh, trigger memories, all of this is still up in the air until we actually understand the true mechanisms of smell itself. Okay, Let us take a break now and we will do some show promos and some PSAs and when we come back we're going to stick with senses. We're going to talk about a couple of stories that have to do with sight. So do stay tuned and I will be right back after these messages. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Snick-a-doodle, shortbread, up bars. How many chicks in the cookie, cookie jar? One. Dad, you're supposed to jump over the rope. <laughs> one more time. <laughs> the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one 4 dad 411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocketship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze. Lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocketship, Tuesday nights 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Okay, we're back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on Valley Free Radio. Now, first off, we are going to talk about hummingbirds. Now, again, we're talking about stories that concern sight now. So hummingbirds are pretty cool uh, in a lot of different ways, but it turns out that they're a good model for a way that some animals can actually see differently from humans. Now we've known for some time that animals can see more than we can really. Our eyes are kind of just okay on the spectrum of animal eyes. Some animals have much more advanced eyes, including the fan favorite, the mantis shrimp, and another fan favorite, the octopus and other cephalopods. And we know that many creatures have four kinds of cones, red, green, blue, and UV. This means they potentially are able to see colors we cannot. We've found that bees, for instance, see a color that is a mix of UV and green called bee purple. But beyond that, there hasn't been too much study in this field. So Mary Stoddard, a researcher at Princeton University, decided to work with hummingbirds to see if they could tell, if she could tell, if they were able to see other colors. Stoddard and her team worked for several summers in Colorado with a pair of hummingbird feeders. One contained sugar water and the other simply plain water. On top of each was a special LED light containing UV, blue, red, and green LEDs behind a diffuser which allowed the researchers to create what are called non-spectral colors colors that are a combination of those basic colors that we can perceive with our cones. So the idea here is that we can see colors that are a mix of red, green, and blue, but other animals should be able to see color mixes that are red, green, and blue, and UV. So there could be a color that's a mix of blue and UV, that is this color that we can't perceive, or one of red and UV that again is a purple that we just can't conceive. Um, and so, or I mean, we can technically conceive it, but we wouldn't be able to actually envision it, I guess is the way to say it. Um, and so in order to make sure that the animals were doing this based on the site, they actually changed the position after a set number of visitors for each hummingbird feeder. And so it turns out that they would have to know which feeder had the sugar water by looking at those different colors. And so they found around 200 to 300 hummingbirds were visiting the feeders depending on the year and they overall recorded around 6,000 individual visits. Now the test showed that the hummingbirds could see every color that the researchers tried. There was a whole chart. Um, Colors that were closer together in hue uh, did result in more mistakes, but were still better than a control at 50-50 odds. They also scanned databases of precisely measured colors that are found on birds and plants, which are quite common in nature, with 30% of bird plumage and 35% of plant colors found in the database as a whole to be mixes of this um, UV and other colors. They believe that this probably translates to other birds as well. Although these experiments were performed with hummingbirds, the team writes, our findings are likely relevant to all diurnal tetrachromatic birds and probably to many fish, reptiles, and invertebrates. Now, tetrachromatic means they can see in four colors, so we are trichromatic, uh, having only three colors. But of course, there are still questions to be asked. Even if the neural mechanisms for color vision were clear, and even if color-mixing experiments attest to avian tetrachromacy, they write, we still could not answer the more philosophical question of what non-spectral colors really look like to birds. Does UV plus green appear to birds as a mix of those colors, analogous to a double-stop chord played by a violinist? Or as a sublime new color, analogous to a completely new tone, unlike its components. We cannot say. Okay, so that is very cool though. Even though we can't say with certainty exactly what it looks like to them, it is really cool to know that they can see these other colors. So now we're going to talk about an actual shrimp. So I mentioned mantis shrimp. And as I always like to remind people, they're not actually a shrimp. They're a stomatopod, Um, but they kind of look like a shrimp to people. So, you know, (laughs) that's what kind of happens. So we are actually going to be talking about the snapping shrimp, Alpheus heterochalus, which was already known for their incredibly fast closing claws, which stun their prey and rivals with the sound of their closing, which is why they're called snapping shrimp. They could snap, and it actually will. It actually disrupts the animal that's in front of them. It actually will make them uh, stun them, which is incredibly cool as in and of itself. But it now turns out that they may actually be able to see as fast as they can close those claws. Alexander Kingston, Daniel Chappelle, and Daniel Spicer of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of South Carolina looked at these shrimp, which are little bigger than your typical wooden matchstick. They placed a thin conducting wire in the eye of a chilled but still alive shrimp in order to record the electrical impulses from the eye in response to flickering light. According to their paper, published in the Journal Biology Letters, the small crustaceans refresh their view 160 times per second. That is one of the fastest rates yet recorded. Pigeons come in close at 143 times, and humans have an excruciatingly slow pace in comparison at just 60 times a second. Side note, that's why 60 frames a second is the minimum for a good film um, because that's the uh, minimum at which your, which your eye won't even conce- conceive that, there, that there's any kind of stoppage between frames. Now, only a few insects that are active during the day actually beat out the shrimps. Now, interestingly... Researchers used to believe that the shrimp probably didn't see that well at all because their carapace extends over their eyes. Now the area is clear for the most part, but they weren't sure how well light traveled through to the actual eye. Well, we now know it seems that this is not an issue for the shrimp at all. But why the need for such speed? Sometimes things just kind of happen, but Usually there's a, uh, there is an evolutionary pressure for these sorts of things to develop well it turns out that the shrimp tend to live in cloudy water so having high speed vision gives them the best chance of catching prey that suddenly appear out of the gloom so if you're in kind of murky water if you've ever seen people diving underwater in murkiness you can see things kind of loom out of the uh out of the muddiness and the sediment And it's really important to be able to uh, sort of capture that information if you're a little tiny shrimp trying to find prey. Um, And so it makes a lot of sense for them to have that fast reaction. Okay, so let's move on now to another pair of stories, this time about ancient eggs. First, let's talk about a 68 million year old egg, the size of a football. It's the largest soft shelled egg on record, and the second largest found so far on earth. New research suggests that the egg belongs to a mosasaur. Now, mosasaurs weren't dinosaurs. They were reptiles who lived in the sea and had long thin necks with a kind of a Chunky middle part body with flippers, and then also, um, in some cases, a long uh, tail. They're kind of often what people think when they imagine the long Loch Ness monster. And a lot of people have over the years said, "Oh, it could be a remnant population of mosasaurs," um, which of course it isn't, but because <laughs> it doesn't exist. But people. If you see some of the images of the Loch Ness monster, that's what a mosasaur looks like. Um, Now, the egg was found in 2011 by a group of Chilean scientists in Antarctica. And if it really is a mosasaur egg, it will be the first ever found. There's no known egg like this, study senior researcher Julia Clark, a professor of vertebrate paleontologist at the University of Texas at Austin, told Live Science. This egg is exceptional in both its size and its structure. Now, the egg was found around 660 feet away from the remains of a 33 foot long Kaikai Flu herve, Hervei, ugh, a large mosasaur, sorry, these names are very hard, uh, found on Seymour Island in Antarctica. According to study co researcher David. Rubilar Rogers, a paleontologist at the National Museum of Natural History, the MNHN, in Santiago, Chile. So the researchers actually dubbed the egg the thing uh, after the amazing John Carpenter movie set in Antarctica in which the team which the team actually watched during a period that they were stuck in their tents due to bad weather notes study co-researcher rodrigo otero a paleontologist at the university of chile in santiago i find that amazingly hilarious that while they were stuck in bad weather in the antarctic they were like sure let's watch a horror movie <laughs> sorry <laughs> set in the antarctic <laughs> um if you can see the um the remastered version of the thing for one thing the visuals are incredible i mean obviously the uh effects don't hold up as well as they could um but i will still say it's one of john carpenter's best movies um and a, just a really good movie in general anyways Now, they initially weren't sure what the fossil was, hence dubbing it the thing, but they knew it must be something interesting, so they brought it back. (laughs) The egg sat in the MNHN until 2018 when Clark visited and began a conversation with Rubilar Rogers about the odd fact that no fossilized eggs had ever been found in Antarctica. Rubilar Rogers decided to show Clark the thing. To me, it looked exactly like a deflated football, Clark recalled. Now, it was around, it's around 11 inches by 8 inches. It's only dwarfed by an egg of the extinct Madagascaran elephant bird. And it now represents the only fossil egg found in Antarctica. The egg has been named an Articuthalus brandii, which in Greek means delayed Antarctic stone egg. And it is the largest soft-shelled egg ever found. The shell is thin and lacks pores, which sets it apart from dinosaur eggs. It is from an animal the size of a large dinosaur, but it is completely unlike a dinosaur egg. Study lead researcher Lucas Legrande, a postdoctoral researcher at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences, said in a statement. It is most similar to the eggs of lizards and snakes, but it is from a truly giant relative of these animals. Now, the determination that the egg comes from a mosasaur is from the fact that there aren't any known late Cretaceous Antarctic dinosaurs or pterosaurs large enough to have laid such a large egg, according to Clark. But there are the tantalizing nearby remains of the K. hervii nearby. Now, from an analysis of modern lizards and snakes of the group Lepidosauria, of which mosasaurs also belong, the researchers believe the egg mother, the egg's mother would have to have measured at least 23 feet long, not including the tail. The area might actually have been a mosasaur nursery, as fossils of baby mosasaurs and plesiosaurs, as well as adults, have also been found in the area. The soft shelled egg discovery is pretty spectacular, according to Darla Zelenitsky, an assistant professor of dinosaur paleobiology at the University of Calgary in Canada, who was not involved in this research. Soft shelled eggs consist almost entirely of membranes, so these soft tissues are quite fragile and destructible. Because of this, for many years we thought the fossilization of such eggs was nearly impossible. And this particular egg would be the first example from a species that researchers didn't even know laid eggs, and the first example of a live birth for an ancient extinct species of snake and of the snake and lizard family. The shell was actually empty of an embryo, which is, of course, why we can't tell exactly what kind of uh, creature actually laid it. Um, But this actually means almost certainly that the animal broke out of its egg and lived. So it turns out that Zelenitsky, as well as other researchers, are actually a little bit skeptical, however. They suggest it might have been a dinosaur egg that was washed out to sea. The new egg looks a lot like the soft-shelled eggs of dinosaurs. Perhaps an analysis comparing the soft tissue of A. bradii with those of other reptile eggs could shed light on what kind of animal laid it, she noted. Now, you'll see there how different people can interpret things differently, and so it definitely um, still needs some investigation. But I think that um, the Moses, the Mosasaur uh, hypothesis holds a little bit more weight for me, um, definitely. Now, of course, Zelenitsky actually has good reason to compare the two types of eggs. She is the senior researcher on our next study. Fifteen years ago, Mark Norrell, a paleontologist at the American Museum of Natural History, discovered a clutch of dinosaur embryos in southern Mongolia, a hotspot for dinosaur eggs. At least a dozen embryos of protoceratops were frozen in a small formation the tiny skeletons looked like they had been curled inside invisible eggs. Around each skeleton was a mysterious white halo. Now, he and his colleagues say that they have solved the mystery. The white halos are the representation of soft-shelled eggs. The study helps explain why a lot of dinosaur eggs are relatively rare. As we noted above, soft shell eggs are on low unlikely to fossilize. The find also may have implications for how dinosaurs grew and tended their offspring. Neural and molecular paleobiologist Jasmina Wyman at Yale University analyzed two clutches of dinosaur eggs, the 75 million year old protoceratops eggs from Mongolia, and a clutch laid around 215 million years ago by, Mus- by Musasaurus, a relative of long-necked dinosaurs like Diplodocus. The team used a new technique which bathes the sample in laser light and records how the light changes as it interacts with the sample's surface, which gives us clues about the chemical composition of the material being studied. Using the difference in signatures between modern hard-shelled and soft-shelled eggs, the researchers found that the signature matched that of modern soft-shelled eggs. Because Musasaurus is such an early example, the researchers believed that dinosaurs would have first laid soft eggs, and as time went on, some, but not all, developed hard-shelled eggs. So we have found dinosaur eggs with hard shells. It's not that we've never found them, which is why it was confusing, because we had found hard-shelled eggs, but not a lot of them. Um, And so it makes a lot more sense now that the reason we don't find more eggs is because not all dinosaurs actually had hard-shelled eggs. And it also reminds us of how different, uh, and various and long-lived, uh, dinosaurs were. And so for these shelled, for these soft-shelled eggs, uh, they probably would have been, uh, taken care of like modern reptiles, such as crocodilians. So the soft-shelled eggs were probably buried in the ground this would have helped them stay moist and would also keep them from being crushed as the parents laid on the crutch. Parent or parents. We don't obviously know um, which parents, whether um, males were invested in, in uh, parental care or not in most species. It might also have meant that they had a longer period of development in the shell. This could have led to a more advanced hatchling, which would have required less parental care afterwards, according to Charles Deeming, a biologist at the University of Lincoln, who was not involved in the current research, but who last year with his colleague David Unwin at the University of uh, Leicester suggested that baby pterosaurs would have been able to fly immediately after hatching. Now, these studies both show us how much we can still learn about these ancient animals from the past. And it also reminds us how long the dinosaurs lived upon the Earth. Like I said, we have been on the Earth a mere speck of time comparatively. I actually have a chart of the uh, geological time scale on the um on my tack board at work, uh, bulletin board at work. And I sometimes like to tell people, uh, I like to to walk them over to it and ask them, how long do you think humans have been on the planet? And, you know, people are like a little bit. I'm like, basically, if you took a um, pencil and you made a mark at the very, very tippity top of the last column, that's about how long... Uh, that humans have been on the earth. And then I say, see this middle column here, the entire column is pretty much how long dinosaurs were on the earth. So um, yeah, definitely a bit of a difference. Um, And of course, part of the problem is that uh, we think that we're very advanced and we think that we've done all these amazing things and, We have a lot to show for it, sure, but I'm not sure that we're going to have longevity to show for it. Um, But let's not be pessimistic. Let's be optimistic. Uh, And let's talk about how we're getting to know our planet better. Uh, It turns out that we've hit a milestone. It's a weak milestone, but it's a milestone nonetheless. As of now, 19% or just under a fifth of the ocean floor has been mapped using modern techniques the nippon foundation gebco seabed 2030 project was launched in 2017 at a time when only six percent of the ocean floor had been properly surveyed now gebco stands for general bathymetric chart of the oceans and so yeah (laughs) Today we stand at the 19% level. That means we've got another 81% of the ocean still to survey, still to map. That's an area about twice the size of Mars that we have to capture in the next decade, Project Director Jamie McMichael Phillips told BBC News. Now this doesn't mean we know nothing about the rest of the area. We have satellite estimates of the topography of much of the seafloor. But this is at a resolution of a kilometer, whereas seabed 2030 wants a resolution of just 100 meters. Now, the way that you figure out what the seafloor looks like using a satellite is actually really cool. The way that you do it is you look at the way that the waves um, are moving and how high they get and what their patterns are, and you can extrapolate from that the gravitational pull on them from the seafloor below and so then you can make an, an estimate of what the seafloor looks like which I think is very cool but also as they point out you can only do that in a very large scale it's not you can't get fine detail doing that Now, of course, knowing more about the true contours of the seabed is important for a whole host of reasons. It's important for navigation, uh, for laying underwater pipes and cables but also for better management of fisheries and conservation efforts for instance underwater mountains or seamounts tend to be biodiversity hotspots so the more that we know where those are the better that we can actually go out there and survey them and check on their health and monitor their health And so it's really important for us to find these. Now the seafloor also influences ocean currents and the vertical mixing of water, which we need to be able to feed into models looking at how climate change will change our environment and our weather. And so it's really important that we get all of this data. Now, a fair amount of the information came from private companies, institutions, and governments. But new mapping was also used, including uh, crowdsourcing. So they did um, a bit of crowdsourcing where they asked different fishing vessels to go out there and to get this data while they were doing their other work. And I think that's really cool to have this sort of citizen science um, component to this research is always great. Um, as you know, I'm a big booster of the idea of citizen science. And so I love that there is at least a small component of that. Um, but again, the team thinks that there is still a fair amount of information in the hands of private companies, institutions, and governments that they haven't yet been able to access. So they're hoping that they'll be able to develop future collaborations to reach more of that stored data and also be able to continue to produce new data. Um, For instance, the British Antarctic um, project has been uh, doing a lot of work and is giving all of their data back to the project. And so they are hoping that by 2030, they will have mapped at least the majority of the seafloor. So that would be very cool. And so yeah, and of course, some of it has already been mapped in the past, but not in a resolution or in a way that makes it usable for this project. So I just think about some of the early examples of seafloor mapping, um, for instance, by Maria Tharp. Um, That was extraordinary at the time, but is now I think a little bit outdated um, because they're using more, uh, they're using different kinds of telemetry, um, mostly uh, sonar telemetry. But um, yeah, so hopefully that is going to happen. All right, that is our show for tonight. I hope that you have a good week. It's It's been hard, but we're going to get through it. We will all be okay. And so, yeah, have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.